At one point, her career choices came down to dolphin trainer, equine vet, or thoroughbred jockey. We'll share the unique path of current jockey agent Liz Morris. Plus, we delve into the latest numbers listed in the equine injury database. Is the sport headed in the right direction or just becoming complacent? We'll have all that and more on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're in the gate. In the gate. They're in the gate. It's a hit-bobbing finish! This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us on the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. It can be rough being a jockey's agent. You're constantly chasing the prize, hustling to get the best mounts for your client. On the phone, hanging around trainers' barns, and then taking much of the blame when the agent's jockey doesn't win. You get the idea. It's an even tougher job when you're a female in a largely male-dominated industry. But hardly anything intimidates Liz Morris, the agent for jockey Adam Beskitza, one of the leading riders this season at the fairgrounds in New Orleans. It's bombs on strike for Adam Beskitza. And toward the inside, John of Vegas, bombs on strike. Bombs on strike wins again. Beats John of Vegas in the Marine Chief Prance Memorial. Who better to understand what a jockey's going through mentally and physically than not just a former jockey, but an all-around athlete? Liz Morris is that, and her unique path to this profession has given her quite a bit of life experience and wisdom to share with her current protege, Adam Biskitza. And we're very pleased to welcome both former jockey and current agent Liz Morris, as well as her protege jockey, Adam Biskitza, here to win the gate. You come from really different worlds. I mean, for those who don't know, Adam is the nephew of a trainer in the U.K. He grew up around racing. Liz is from Texas, used to train dolphins at one point, and then got into racing as a jockey. So how did the two of you find each other and develop a partnership? Well, Barry, I'm I'm not quite sure what to say on uh, Liz's dolphins, but uh, I mean, it's I don't think it's too too strange, a, you know, connection. Uh, we seem to get along very well, and you know, Liz definitely knows what she wants, and she's very experienced in the game. And you know, I'm uh, privileged for her to take on my book and be part of her team as such. Liz, did I read that when you were learning to become a jockey in the early 2000s, you used to practice riding on bales of hay? I did. I practiced on bales of hay, and then I finally got connected with Frankie Lovato, which was a mentor to me in the game, and that led me into Steve Asmussen's barn, and that those connections ended up leading me like in racing throughout a bunch of other connections as well, like with Ronnie Warner working for him, and then Essentially being in Chicago and staying there and then pursuing being a jockey in Chicago where they didn't ride girls. So, Yeah, we'll get to that in a couple of seconds. But, you know, from the whole different world thing, I mean, Adam, you went from riding in the U.K. to the Bayou of New Orleans. And, of course, we all know the culture of those areas is so similar now, isn't it? What made you want to settle in Louisiana? Well, Barry, it wouldn't be my first time coming to New Orleans. When I was 18 and I was an apprentice back in England, I decided in the off-season 
to maybe come over to America and get a bit of, you know, different experience track riding and getting a, you know, clock in your head. And I thought it would be very, very valuable for, you know, my race riding back home in England when I eventually returned two months later after my stint here with Mike Stidham. And I've always known New Orleans, so it was it was sort of a place where I knew where I was, so I thought it was a good good place for me to come back to as, you know, I had my whereabouts already and I'd made a nice handful of contacts when I left and, you know, I knew a lot of people here, so it made sense for me to come back. They don't eat a lot of crawfish in England, though, do they? De- <laughs> definitely not, and uh, I'm not a fan myself. Nor am I. I can't say as I blame you. Speaking of other animals, we were talking about uh, training dolphins and all that other fun stuff. Before that, though, Liz was a soccer star. One of the teams she played on was an all-male team. How did that sort of thing prepare you for the male-dominated sport of horse racing? Well, I went to high school in Texas, and if you know anything about Texas with sports, it's pretty intense. I was varsity soccer as a freshman there and um, soccer. I've been playing soccer since I was five. So we had our own doctors. I mean, it was like intense, like, you know, playing soccer in, in Texas. And it's always been a passion of mine. And that led to scholarships in college. And then I moved to Hawaii. And when I played with All Mill, I played for the, I, try, I practiced with the United States Air Force team. And the United States Air Force team asked me to try out. And I was like, are you serious? And they're like, yeah, try out. You practice with this, you're good. And so I did, and I made the team, and that's how I play with all men. And as far as preparing me, I just think I've been prepared since, honestly, I just feel like I was prepared even in high school because just playing sports in Texas, is, they take it very, very seriously. They take it as if it's like a college, and you have to be mentally strong or you just can't make it. They push you to your limit, and I just think I've been prepared ever since. And that's kind of what brought me into horse racing anyways when I – I wanted to go to school to be a horse vet, and it kind of, when I started working for a vet, and I started working on the backside with the vet, and then I started, I was introduced to, you know, horse racing that way, and I was like, wow, you could be a jockey? I'm like, are you kidding me? I can, I can have, like, that animal cognition with the animal and be the athlete that I am. I can combine the two and make money. You can actually make a living doing this. And so then I, when I found that out, I was like, no, I don't want to be a vet anymore. I want to be a jockey. So then I focused on being a jockey. And I just think being a jockey, being a female riding with a bunch of men when they didn't really ride women a whole lot at the time that I was riding, I think all that prepared me to be a better agent because I just, you got to have thick skin. Nothing really bothers me. Yeah, I can tell that. And so you, you rode for five years, you decide to become an agent, and I've heard you say that people around the track were really getting on you to become an agent. But I mean, you have a college degree, yeah. you've done so many different things. Of all the things you could have done after hanging up your tack, why would you become an agent? Well, because when I was a jockey, I never rode the horses. I never had an opportunity to ride a lot of favorites. Like I said, they didn't ride girls in Chicago when I was riding. So I had to figure out a way, how am I going to get these horses to run that I'm being offered at the moment? So I would do a lot of homework. I'd go to the library and pull up race replays. I got into pedigree. I started figuring out the horse, the cognitive side of the horse. So I took horses that were 20 to 1, and I started winning on a bunch of long shots. I knew how to handicap a race because I had to figure out any way that I could take advantage of the other riders in a race to actually possibly win a race to get a better mount next time from that trainer. So all I used to, all the jocks in the ring used to go, Liz, how am I going to ride and run in this race day? And I would tell them like, you're going to win this race. And they're like, no, I'm not. I'm 15 one. I'm like, yeah, you are. And this is why you're going to win this race. And they look at me like I'm nuts. And eventually it became like a theme where they're like, when are you going to be an agent, Liz? Why don't you just retire from racing and take my book? 
you'd be a great agent. You're, I was always my own best agent when I was writing, too, because you have to be. So it just kind of led into me being an agent. And when I was ready to stop riding, that's what I did. I decided to become an agent. I like the stimulation. I like figuring out figuring out the horses and where horses belong and the challenge of it all. I like people. So that's what made me want to be an agent. Well, the next obvious question, and we're talking with jockey Adam Biskitza and his agent Liz Morris. Adam, aside from actually booking your mounts, how has Liz helped you become a better jockey? <laughs> well, I think she's... Uh probably because she trains dolphins <laughs> <laughs> i i don't need adam doesn't need any help by me adam's good at good at what he does by himself trust me he's a very good jockey no de- definitely barry i mean it's it's definitely i'm coming into the unknown i've i've never come over here and done business like i have in the past you know i, I came here and you know we really the ball got rolling very early and things happened very quick and you know as well as Liz knows the game inside and out, you know, she can teach you what direction to go in at at the right time. So her support is invaluable at the moment. And what I've learned so far, you know, I'll take on to the next semester and hopefully we can build on it. Well, let's take it from another side. I mean, Liz, as a multi-sport athlete, which you obviously were, what sorts of things do you try to communicate to your clients, Adam, now that you wish your own agents had imparted to you? Oh, wow. <laughs> what I try to do is I just try to let, get, I just try to let Adam know some of the trainers that I already know and I've already been doing business with that he has not yet ridden for or are already now is. It's all about, too, it's, there's a lot of um, public relation work to deal with in this game. You've got to get to know the people. They don't like you for who you are. You might, you might be a great rider. You might be able to ride out there. But if you don't click personality-wise, then they might choose not to ride you, you know? And... That way I can I can teach. That's where I think I've been able to help Adam if there's anything I can help him with. It's not the riding. Adam's a great rider. But if I just wish, God dang, I was always my own best agent, man. The only agent that I ever had that really honestly like tried hard for me and we did really well together was Jim Miller, which was the general manager of Hawthorne. And then that's why I was leading Apprentice is because we did work so good together. I mean, I just wish the agents, like sometimes when I had my optimism, of like saying, oh, I'm going to ride for this guy, and they didn't believe that I would ever ride for them uh, prior to having Jim Miller as my agent, they they went and believed me. So I'd have to get myself in those barns. Do you know what I mean? And then I did ride for him, and I did win for him. But that's the thing. Like, I, I would say that, like, if, if Adam comes to me and he says, Liz, I want to ride for Brad Cox, and we haven't ridden for Brad Cox yet, I'm going to try to ride for Brad Cox. Where my agents, some of the agents I had in the past, they didn't do that. They thought it was unrealistic. Well, I don't think anything's unrealistic sometimes. I'm very optimistic. There's a will, there's a way, and that's how I've lived my whole life, and that's why I've been able to be I believe that's part of the ingredients to why I've been successful my whole life, because I don't shut my own doors. I always look at it as, hey, there's a door there, it's meant to be open. And here I was trying to keep sports and politics separate. Oh, well. <laughs> that's so, our Ad- business. <laughs> so, Adam, everyone in life needs a mentor. Uh, yours here in the States so far appears to be trainer Joe Sharp, Mr. Rosie Napravnik. Most of your winners in New Orleans have been on horses that Joe Sharp trains. It's a little hard for me to think of Joe Sharp as a mentor because he's only 33. But how is it that you hit it off with the guy? He's definitely got a wealth of knowledge on his shoulders for uh, 33 Um He's a bit like myself, you know, he's born and raised in the business. How I came to meet Joe, when I was explaining earlier, I came over when I was 18, when I was an apprentice back home in England, just for a bit of uh, experience. I worked for Mike Stidham for two months, just doing track work. 
and Joe Sharp was the assistant at the time. And obviously he sort of took me under his wing and uh, we became very good friends. And, you know, I learned a lot of him then. And, you know, we sort of stayed in contact ever since. And I've been over, you know, numerous amounts of times, you know, when Joe first started training four or five years ago, I came over for, you know, his first year and I worked alongside him again. And, you know, he had his first Breeders' Cup runner and uh, I came back over and, you know, we, we've always been good friends and, in you know, close contact and what I've learned off him and, you know, it's it's nice to sort of repay the favour to him after all these years and it's nice for him to help me at the same time. Now, Liz, I heard you're a big hiker, Mount Zion, Grand Canyon, which is number one on my bucket list. How are you calling trainers and booking mounts when you're on the side of a cliff? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I don't normally get away very often because I just, I feel like if I'm away, I, I, I don't know, I, I don't like that. But I did take a break when I had Sean's book and I had Jack's book that that um, last year at Churchill. They said, Lizzie, you know, you need a break. You know, I had a good Ellis meet. And so I said, okay, I'm going to take a break for like three or four days. And I went, that's what I did. I went hiking. I wanted to go to the Grand Canyon and hike the Grand Canyon and Mount Zion and Coral Reef. That was awesome. Oh, I wanted, and it, you know what? It freshened me up. So I came back. I was ready to go. You kind of need that. You need to take that balance every now and then in your in your career because our day it's an everyday grind. I mean, it's seven days a week, and it after a while it could take a toll on you. And that's one thing I learned from being an agent and doing this for so long is you need to take a little time for yourself because if not, your life just passes you by. And it's a 46 to 1 in front. Vagabond Princess, I'm Betty G. Here's Moms on Strike, who's charging for Adam Biskitzer. Moms on Strike, Moms on Fire. Moms on Strike wins again. Adam, what is the future here for Moms on Strike? I mean, she's done exceptionally well since she's been at the fairgrounds. I think the way the fairground fairgrounds layout is, um, it really suits her running style. But like I said, she, she came into the fairgrounds meet on uh, the back of very good form and you know she's she's had a quite a long campaign now and well we wish you both the best of luck going forward thank you both so much for taking a few minutes for us thanks Barry. i appreciate it we're going to take a short break here on in the gate but when we come back the equine injury database numbers are out for 2017 is the sport headed in the right direction we'll dive into that when we come back Welcome back to the In The Gate podcast. Let's suppose for a minute you had an insect infestation in your house a few years ago. Everywhere you went, every bedroom, the bathroom, even the kitchen where you cook and serve food, there were stink bugs everywhere. You know, those little slow-moving, wide-bodied, creepy crawlies that don't do much except look ugly, but you just want them the heck out of your house? Well, suppose you call an exterminator, and the exterminator puts down poison for them, but you still see the stink bugs in your house. Maybe a little less often, but they're still there. You call the exterminator again the next spring, he keeps putting down poison, but the little guys are still there. After a couple of years of this, the exterminator says, According to our calculations, the number of stink bugs is down 20% from a few years ago when we started treating your house. Well... I guess that's good, but you know what? The little dudes are still giving me the willies in my house. Recently, 
The doctor in charge of overseeing the equine injury database announced the results of 2017. And he said, while there's a little bit of statistical variation in the numbers in the last three years, many of the numbers were basically the same as the previous two years, he made a point of saying that fatalities are down 20% from when the database was first started nearly a decade ago in 2009. We're talking about fatalities that occur within 72 hours of a race. Okay, but fatalities, the stink bugs of thoroughbred racing, are still there. And if anything, there were a couple of numbers that were a tick or two higher than they'd been in 2017. So what does this mean? And where does the sport go from here to try to lower those numbers? We're going to pose those questions to one of the leading minds in racehorse safety, Dr. Mary Scalay, the equine medical director for the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission, a member of the American Association of Equine Practitioners, and a consultant on the Equine Injury Database. Welcome, Dr. Scalay. First of all, before we delve into some of the specifics, the main gist of the numbers is in the past three years, the overall number of fatalities have essentially stayed the same, 1.61 per thousand starts, a tick higher than the record low of 1.54 set two years ago, and roughly the same as it was three years ago. What do you make of these numbers? Well, I mean... First thing that I'd say is that these last three years represent a substantial improvement over the initial years of the equine injury database when when we had multiple years and we really didn't move off of basically 2.0 fatalities per thousand starts. So it represents improvement over time, but it also suggests that we need to continue improvement and not be satisfied with where we are. A couple of those numbers jumped out at me. Fatalities on the turf went up from 1.09 to 1.36 per thousand starts, 30% lower than when the database started, but a 25% increase from a year earlier. What do you think about that? Yep. I mean, it's not a movement we like to see for sure. I mean, I think the first thing that's important to remember is that this does not identify a cause-and-effect relationship, okay? We can't say with certainty that something about turf, the condition of the turf or whatever, resulted in, in these injuries. This tells us what happened. It didn't tell us why it happened. And so this says to me we need to take a close look at last year's turf racing to see if we can understand, you know, was it weather-related? Were there issues in terms of keeping a, a consistent turf surface? Were there other issues that impacted turf racing in North America? Well, the the interesting thing is, you know, the way these numbers were presented, it kept stressing the 20% decline since the database was established in 2009. It was emphasized multiple times. And, you know, you've obviously said the results should serve to further motivate us to continue that trend. But I keep getting back to the way that presentation was made. Could you not interpret the message to say that the industry is getting complacent, not stressing that the numbers need to improve because even one fatality is too much? You know, what do you say to something like that? Well, I mean, I I don't think it's indicative that the industry is complacent. I mean, in, in terms of safety and welfare initiatives, there's still an awful lot of ongoing work and investigation in terms of, you know, how can we make further change? I, I think that it's important to remember Tim Parkin, who's the epidemiologist for the Equine Injury Database, I think it, the, it was the last Welfare and Safety Summit, he actually looked at the occurrence of fatalities and sort of broke them down 
bad phrase. I'm sorry. We get it. Yeah, okay. I'm sorry. He looked at the risk factors and identified their sort of individual contribution to the overall occurrence. Does that make sense? Yeah. What I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. And so what he determined is that, you know, there really aren't any that contribute 40 or 50%. They're all 3, 4, 5, 6, 7%, which means that you're going to have to change a lot of things to make a substantial difference. Changing one thing is going to make a, a minute difference, and, and that can still be a good thing. But, you know, it's not like flipping on or off a light switch. And I think what the initial drop shows, that, that initial 20% drop, shows that we've, you know, we've handled the low-hanging fruit. And now, now we're getting into the more difficult things, the more subtle, more nuanced things in terms of identifying more ways to protect the horse. Well, speaking of large differences versus small differences. And I know having been around thoroughbred racing for a long time that I'm about to open up Pandora's box, but what the heck, that's what I get paid for. You know, among the numbers that came out were 1.74 fatalities per thousand starts on dirt, 1.1 for synthetic. Yet, as you know, as well as anybody, horsemen here in the United States were so against synthetic surfaces that all three tracks in Southern California, including Hollywood Park, which is now gone, that had synthetic surfaces switched back to dirt. Yet the numbers suggest that a synthetic surface is the safest. And why wouldn't safety win the day here? Well, I think one of the things that the equine injury database, our fatality statistics don't examine, because we are looking at horses that die as a result of an injury or condition sustained during the running of the race, we are not yet looking at overall wastage, meaning horses that race and then never race again. So they sustain an injury that's not life-threatening, but it's career-ending, right? Yeah, I mean, this is only measuring deaths, not career-ending. Right. Okay, so the, the rear end, the hind limb injury issue has, has been brought up many times with respect to synthetic surfaces, and I don't have any data to examine for that. But certainly there is the concern that the overall wastage for synthetic racing, the overall loss of horses that have participated on a synthetic service may be higher than is represented by the, the fatality rate. Now, certainly, you know, fatalities are fatalities, and we want as few as possible. But I think that it is also important to remember that that 1.74 for the dirt surfaces, that represents the mean and that there are dirt surfaces that perform substantially better than that, that are much have a much better safety record than 1.74. And so I think the challenge is knowing that statistically the synthetic surfaces demonstrate a better safety record. If you want to go to dirt, the challenge has been put down there. You have to come up with the safest dirt surface possible. You've got to beat that average by quite a bit in order to you know, withstand legitimate scrutiny. We're chatting here with Dr. Mary Scalay, the Equine Medical Director for the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission and a consultant on the Equine Injury Database. Now, you talked about how there are so many potential little factors that need to be improved to bring that number down. In the nine years now that this database has been around, what factors in training and racing horses do you think have evolved the most as a result of the data gleaned from this database? Um, I certainly think that we've improved our pre-race exam programs. The scrutiny that's applied to the horses pre-race has increased substantially. And so 
you know, that I think that has drawn a clear line in the sand for horsemen as to what is and is not acceptable in terms of a horse on race day. And I think that's made a big difference. I have a friend who's a veterinarian here in Kentucky. I saw him last year. He comes here seasonally. And, and I mentioned sort of just a general assessment that I thought, you know, the horses that were training on the track really looked better than I'd seen in several years. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, you've, you've trained them not to bring bad ones here. Okay, I'll, I'll take that. You know, if people understand that we've, we've got a, you know, a high standard for the health of our athletes, then we're protecting the horses, we're protecting the integrity of the competition, we're protecting the jocks. It's, you know, it's a win for everybody. Well, ultimately, do you believe that with regard to these numbers that the ocean has reached its stable level, or is there really a way to create a drop in these numbers? Oh, I'm I'm not willing to accept that this is the best we can do. I mean, when you look at the international communities, they're still at one or, or slightly below when really comparing on an apples-for-apples apples basis. So, no, we still have things that we need to look at, things that we need to do. I think that a number of business models need to be examined, and that hasn't really happened yet. We've started to address issues with claiming horses with the voided claim rule, and, and I think that that is going to have a substantive effect on equine safety and welfare. But we were talking about turf racing earlier. I'll give you an example. Some of these shorter meets, if you enter a horse in a turf race and you scratch out of that turf race, for whatever reason, the horse sick, he got cast in the stall, whatever reason you scratch out of that race, if you want to re-enter in a turf race, you are all the way at the back of the line. There are several hundred horses in front of you that want to enter in that race the next time it, it shows up. And so for a relatively short meet, Saratoga, Del Mar, I mean, even the, the championship meet at Gulfstream in the winter, you may very well have taken your horse out of any opportunity to race on the turf for that meet. Does that affect people's decision-making when it comes to scratching a horse? That maybe simply, as we say at the racetrack, ain't doing right because you know that that may be your only opportunity to run the horse on the turf at that meet. I don't know, but I think it's a question that needs to be asked and needs to be examined because we assume that the horsemen who are caring for the horses know the most about their horses. You know, I can't believe for a minute that at a pre-race exam, I can know more about a horse than the individual who's been caring for that horse day in, day out for months. If I do more, know more about that horse, then, then clearly that's a much larger and very different problem. So the, the goal is to incentivize trainers to make the right decision when it comes to entering their horse. And that may call for an examination of the business model that may incentivize poor decisions. In an era of big data, it looks like we're going to need a lot bigger sample size and a lot more different kinds of data to really get a sense of where this is going. But thank you so much for bringing us up to date, Dr. Scalate. I'm glad to be a part of it. Thank you very much. Our thanks to Dr. Mary Scalay, Liz Morris, and Adam Baskitza. It's been too many years since the big cap made a real impact because it falls too close to the race in Dubai. If Santa Anita officials move the race up by two weeks, the Pegasus horses might give the big cap a try. I've thought the same of the Triple Crown. The better thing for business is to encourage derby horses to come back. Horses race now once a month, not three times in five weeks, so after the derby, many good ones hit the sack. But if you run the Preakness on Memorial Day weekend and the Belmont on the July 4th holiday, 
the Derby horses would have sufficient rest and most would enter to make a Triple Crown win harder in a different way. The bottom line is dates for these races did not come down from the mountain, written by God on tablets made of stone. A slight adjustment to improve business seems an obvious move to me, but change in this business brings whines, complaints, and moans. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.